Hello and welcome to the Limited Bandwidth Podcast. Uh, we are your hosts, Leo and David, otherwise known as the folk duo, The Last Inklings. Now, social media is here to stay, whether we like it or not. And it's become an essential part of a, an artist's toolkit for connecting with our audiences. And we're kind of on this journey to discover how to make it work for us. And at the same time, making sure that we keep space to be creative. Uh, so, so far in our in our first two episodes, we've explored the role that social media plays for other creatives who are a bit like us. Uh, they're both musicians uh, active in various areas of the scene. And we were finding out how they use social platforms and what impact they feel it has towards their goals as artists and the impact it, it has on them as well as individuals. Yeah, in the last episode, we spoke to John Parker about the ways in which social media has evolved through his career. And sort of how he's adapted to to find a balance between this digital world and the real world and staying visible, but also saving valuable space to be creative and practicing and life away from work. So in our next three episodes, uh, we're talking to specialists in the fields of psychology, therapy and digital marketing. And in this episode, we will be talking to Dr. Sarah Hodge, who is a senior lecturer in psychology at Bournemouth University. Um, and we're going to be talking about the psychology of, of digital burnout and the potential impact of, of all this screen time. So thank you very much for joining us. So I um, have a background in psychology. So all my degrees are in psychology, but I was really interested in cyber psychology. So I did a PhD looking at understanding psychology, but in this cyber context, how can we understand behaviour? Um, and I was particularly interested in video gaming. And now I teach sort of cyber psychology, looking at social media and video games and all the related concepts around it. Now, we absolutely have to ask, uh, Sarah, the very, very first thing. We stumbled upon you because you're a cyber psychologist. What on earth does that mean? It sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like this title. It, it's a really nice area of psychology that's sort of developed and it's looking at how we can apply psychology to technology. That's the way I like to define it. So understanding that interaction between us and technology. So there could be a number of things. There's lots of sort of boundaries that, that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's dig in. Now we were thinking kind of in the first half of the podcast, if we think of it that way, uh, we wanted to look at some of the potential effects and impacts that psych uh, technology uh, use can have on us, kind of physiologically, psychologically, mentally, all of that. And um, yeah, the second half, we'll, we'll move on to sort of how to monitor our usage um, and what, what these effects can have and, and what we can do about it, like hints and tips and advice and that sort of thing. Yeah, because it's very easy to feel quite negative about it. And I know we come from that place sometimes. Uh, and quite often the media throws us this really negative image of what it's like to be glued to your screens. And like we've become quite aware, definitely, like tech giants are working <laughs> away in the background to keep us online all the time. Uh, but we were wondering, like, what are some of the effects we might notice of, of screen time, of increased screen time if we're online all the time? That's a really good question, because it's it's... It's something we do day to day, isn't it? You know, a lot of people say the first thing they do is look at their phone. Um, and I think technology is so integral in our lives that maybe we won't notice particularly. I think the pandemic was a time that we all noticed what it was like to use technology that much and use it in ways that we might have not normally used it or used it in an increased kind of way. So when we think about like work, mm. most of us might have not used technology as much. So I don't think it's something we'd always notice uh, actually which is actually quite interesting when you think about it yeah it's quite insidious i suppose 
Um, yeah, I mean, it could be a good thing as well. It's like yeah. seamless seamless usage is kind of what they're all aiming for, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose if you don't have to think too much about switching between the two states, mm. then potentially that's a that's an ease of use. Uh, then yeah, I think I think there's quite an interesting point there actually that the idea that you could easily end up using technology a lot yeah. um, without realizing it. So I think that could easily happen, but also the benefits of the fact it is so easy to use that it's more accessible. Like we've come across um, ideas just in, I mean, this like popular psychology reading, I guess, and the stuff that hits the media, um, that screen time can have some genuine impact. So things like the increased exposure to blue light, playing around with maybe sleeping patterns, but uh, memory was something that came up quite a lot for us. Mm, like we yeah. were listening to us, some other creatives talk about how being online all the time, they feel that that's had an impact on their ability to to literally recall things and... Yeah, yeah is moment. that a consequence of sort of the fatigue of of being in front of a screen, or is there something else going on there? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, that's that's quite a complicated one. It, I think it's very difficult to know exactly what it is because you're right. It could be the fact that you're using technology and how you process the information might be different. There is something called Zoom fatigue that they've done quite a lot of research on. No surprise from the <laughs> pandemic yeah. and people using Zoom a lot. And they did find that people were sort of having these fatigued effects from using Zoom, you know, on a day-to-day basis for all those meetings. So that could be a factor in it as well. It could just be the way the information is given to us. We process it differently. You know, if we're watching videos and how we think about that information versus if we're reading, it sometimes it's the way we're actually receiving the, the information. Yeah, there's so many variables in, in that aren't there it's mm. like when when you're setting up a study or, or something it's it's so hard to have a control in like a, a a group set of people who are using technology in almost infinite different ways yeah <laughs> i think you'd be hard pushed to find a control group of people who don't use technology that regularly <laughs> that's true could i say something else that could also be contributing to it as well is that it might also be the way we use technology because there's something where people have like um They try to use a lot of technology at once and we're all kind of guilty of this, of having lots going on. So we might Mm. be listening to music while we're on our computer, we've got something else open, we're looking at something else, we're using our messages at the same time and actually we're kind of demanding a lot from ourselves. So it could be the way we use technology that is kind of contributing to this memory because we're actually using a lot of our capacity up on things all at once and it tires us out. Yeah, I guess that ties into like short attention spans having decision fatigue yeah is it short attention span or have you just filled up your bandwidth to deal with something in that space just that there have been so many context changes in the last 10 minutes of like (laughs) all these messages coming in on different platforms and all these things yeah the ability to be distracted by something that's ever present yeah that's definitely one of them i think (laughs) well for us anyway speaking for us i mean uh we'd read something about memory being very much affected as well by um, it's difficult to describe because we we are sat here on microphones and you can't really see us. But when you're when you're not really moving and you've got no other kind of kinesthetic things to to fold into how you make a memory, people have suggested that that's quite a key thing about why technology sometimes makes us feel like we're not kind of having that engaged memory process come into effect. But I don't mm. know if that's anything you've covered yeah, it's before. Like, it's a one one digital stimulus to create yeah. a memory rather than. In the real world. You don't have all the different actions of movement and Uh, being active in the space. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a procedural memory, which is is like the, it's what they call like the video recorder memory, is if you're taking a video of something, that's what your memory's like. And yeah, I think there could be some logic in that, that when you're online, it's slightly different the way you communicate. 
you haven't got necessarily all your senses engaged the way you would in real life. So it could definitely be contributing or it could just be a different form of memory. It might not be tapping into that kind of memory. Okay. It's quite an interesting one. I mean, the, the idea of overloading the CPU does kind of like make sense there, definitely. <laughs> it's funny how you have to sort of talk in, in terms of thinking of yourself as a digital being. Yeah. It, it, you, can't, you can't really talk about these things in terms of if you were to flip that and think of the platform as a, an organic being, because it doesn't really work. You've kind of got to interface it with it as a robot, haven't you? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, <laughs> I mean, thinking of that kind of trigger thing, is it is there any truth, I suppose, behind this idea that exposure to blue light when using screens has a genuine impact on us, for example? Yeah, that that is another argument that's kind of been reoccurring for a long time. And it's quite debated exactly what the impacts are. I think the most recent research that I can recall is to um, basically try and help your eyes as much as possible. So I think at the moment, it's less about the blue light and more about the contrast. So if you're in a dark room uh, with the light on you, yeah, that's very difficult for your eyes because you've got a direct light coming in, but you're in a dark room. Mm. So I think some of the recent guidance has been to make sure that your area is well lit. You want to be in a blue room, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think it's that. Um, and I think just generally having those breaks from screens is is what the opticians would say for sort of your eye health and things. Yeah, because we'd read there was a, a kind of stress response that could come about because normally when you're stressed in a kind of, well, potentially anthropological way, you're focused on a single thing because that might be the thing that is the stressor. And your phone can act as the same kind of thing, your pinpoint focus on that for a long time. Whereas when you're kind of in a peaceful state, you've got the whole horizon and you can relax and your eyes can wander a little bit. But yeah, not sure. That was that was a bit of a pop psychology article. <laughs> yeah, there it as might well. have been. The difficulty is there's so much out there around this topic. You know, it's something that the media particularly emphasises, mm. and where it's fairly new, we don't always have the evidence yet to know. And I think that taps into what you were saying about the role of the blue light. Sometimes we don't know because we haven't studied it long enough yet to know what the effects are. Yeah, it does kind of. It is interesting the idea of the contrast thing as well because I can mm. easily picture myself still doing work emails in the dark, kind <laughs> yeah. of sat in bed because everything's gotten dark around me. Rely on the natural light, and it will run out at some point. So yeah, we've we've kind of been reading, um, we've been pick, picking up on these news articles that have popped up around um, sort of buzzwords using like dopamine and things like that. But is there any truth in the suggestion that social media? use can kind of function in a similar way yeah i mean people talk about it i don't really want to use the word addiction but <laughs> kind of like it can encourage that behavior because there's something to kind of pull you along mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's a it's a really relevant question because at the moment they're really thinking about what are the effects of technology as you've probably seen and the idea is when we look at other sort of behavioral uh, addictions what they're called when you have something that isn't like a substance that you take they call it behavioral and the newer versions of technology, we don't really know if they're addiction. Um, it hasn't really been confirmed yet. Mm. All we know is that they have rewards in them. So the dopamine you're talking about, that's the reward system. And some people do talk about having the reward feeling and it could mimic that almost addiction-like behaviour, but we don't know whether it's addiction yet. It's, it's really debated, um, particularly social media is still very much debated. Video gaming is debated but i think leaning more to potentially becoming closer to behavioral addiction mm. uh but that's only the consensus at the minute as you can see it's it's really sort of a debated area on whether it is or not 
Yeah, because leaning in closer to social media platforms, quite a lot of that comes for us. I mean, other musicians we've spoken to as well from the metrics like likes, follows, subscribes and things. And the end result of that, which hopefully, I mean, in our case, would be ticket sales in the real world. And obviously that's that's a measure of have I done well? Do I get a little pat on the back because there's a rising subscriber count somewhere? Um, but yeah, it does sometimes feels a bit insidious. And I know there's platforms out there that have taken that away. So I wonder, like you say, I suppose it's early days. We've not really seen what the impact of that's going to be just yet. No, it's it's quite interesting watching watching the platforms evolve over time, um, specifically the the social media ones where, you know, it, it all started off with kind of one one social media platform and then Facebook jumped on board and Twitter and everyone else. And they all work in slightly different ways. Like some of them are more visual, some of them are more sort of video oriented. And they all sort of, press different buttons as a user so you find yourself being more drawn to one than another and you you find yourself naturally because there's you know it's it's kind of like a marketplace of of social media platforms and yeah you does can this choose, serve the purpose i need yeah you can choose which one to spend most of your time on i mean like saying that thinking of time uh has your area of research kind of picked up on uh, again another buzzword but doom scrolling as, uh, <laughs> yes. i mean because there are or some in, of these infinite platforms scrolling, infinite it, yeah. scrolling yeah infinite yeah, scroll yeah it definitely i mean that's one of the design features they've looked at because you know the benefits of that is obviously as you said earlier that people will use the technology because it encourages you to keep going because it's almost endless mm. but for obviously from the the user point of view is that going to be difficult to then stop using it? And it, this is why it kind of comes back full circle to that argument about are we seeing addiction-like behaviour if mm. people, you know, are spending loads of time on it and they're getting that reward. So that's sort of where that argument came from. Um, but the difficulty with technology, particularly with when we think about whether, you know, spending time and, and well-being and potentially addiction-type behaviour is does time actually relate to it? Because as you guys rightly pointed out, you use it for your work and that's going to have a level of time commitment. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're not necessarily using it too much. It's just that that's how you want to use it and maybe how you need to use it if you want to get a certain, you know, level of success. Yeah, that definitely comes into it, I suppose. Um, I think we've said this before, kind of if you want to be doing something, is it necessarily negative? And then it's how you choose to to direct that time later. Um, yeah, I think for us, it's probably being caught in the trap of we do need to use it for a sensible reason. <laughs> but again, the distraction is so often so close that it's very easy to be pulled off task and have that kind of weird multitasking thing happen where mm -hmm. suddenly you're answering a message because you're using that platform for a work need, like to advertise, but it's social at the end of the day. So a social mm -hmm. thing can interfere. Yeah, something that feeds into that is kind of this uh, this idea of a curated online identity. Oh, yeah being disassociated from from your real life identity and sort of how to tell the difference between this what is it an auto-tuned online image or yeah. something well this is this is a thing that's come out i think since lockdown very much using that more as a descriptor real world versus like this is real life it's not it's not a zoom call <laughs> i mean yeah how does that play into things in terms of like how people approach these platforms from a morality perspective do you think mm. this kind of social media space yeah, it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I often, I used to use the term real life a lot in my teaching mm. um, and it always sounded a bit abstract, but now the pandemic's really helped me in using that and making more sense, you know, which is, you know, 
bit of a selfish point there, but quite quite a funny one. Now people accept that term yeah. of, you know, real life. And I think... It's common parlance. Yeah. It is, right? And I yeah. think they can really sort of empathise with that more. Before it was people that tended to use a lot more technology, but now we're kind of mm. all experiencing it. It kind of groups together. It, it's really related to that, the fact that we, some people do see it as distinct. What's interesting is when I've sort of been working with pupils at school, children at younger ages, they don't necessarily have that distinction. They see it as one thing. So whether there's like a difference depending on kind of the generation of technology you're used to or how you've previously used it. Mm. um, But most people still do have that online, offline. And we do see sometimes one of the theories is when people are acting in certain ways, if they're allowed to be anonymous... They might do things they wouldn't do face to face. So we might see behaviours that we wouldn't see. And they often say that for things like trolling, you know, some of the more negative behaviours. This is a really nice example of what could explain that. So do you think uh, those younger users are coming at it because they see it all as one big thing? They don't feel anonymous and they might use it more respectfully or... Is it a case that when something happens online, they can't tell that it's just there in the online sphere and it doesn't have the same real world impact potentially? Yeah, I mean... It- It'd be really intriguing to know exactly what it is. I wonder if they just see it as them, their experience, and they don't necessarily have that dissociation or that different identity. It might just be one experience for them. Do you think even for adult users, there's a barrier to sometimes understanding when things like David said have been auto-tuned for you to (laughs) see online? And that can be everything from like making your picture a little bit nicer to consciously thinking about what you're going to post online to show people a very positive glossy version of your life i mean is yeah do we fall into that trap the typical one is just seeing everybody's holiday pictures isn't it yeah (laughs) everything is always good all the time yeah we were actually talking about that in in the seminars today about you know about honesty and obviously honesty that you know people are saying they should be honest online but actually that means all this filtering does that is that honest if you're not actually forgiving people a, a, a particular perspective Sometimes it might not be on purpose. It might just be mm. the, the way we naturally edit things, you know, or sharing it from our perspective sometimes means that. But yeah, there's there's so much around that kind of, you know, filtering life in a way that it will... To be honest with you, when you look at social media, because it's from someone's point of view and, and what they're trying to express, there'll always be a certain level of what I would call abstraction. It's not actually... It's their version of reality. Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, because for us, this is balancing things like how honest would you be about uh, the difficulty of touring and ticket sales? Mm. Because you want to give people that idea that your your thing is a nice escapism and it's something fun to do and it comes with something positive and a nice interaction being in the room together. But sometimes th- the honesty around showing why it isn't working can take the shine off of that. It's quite a hard one. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it kind of feeds into something else that we've been talking about in that social media platforms have kind of got a few different functions now in that they were originally set up purely as a social sort of connection between human beings, really finding friends, keeping up to date, that sort of thing. And now marketing has become such a big part of that. Yeah. We've had to twist them, co-opt them into being marketing tools and it's not their natural state of well, being. Yeah. So it's quite I mean, weird. even, even our organic social media feeds now, we identified sort of where the, uh, the algorithms had changed such that we're seeing way more content from, big tech from other companies rather than individuals are people looking into those sorts of things 
Mm. I think they, they definitely are because obviously the rise of the influencers and how much influencers have been able to sort of have lots of branding, mm. you know, sell their merch. There's so much marketing behind that. Um, whether it was planned or, or, or accidental, <laughs> it's, it, it feels very much for me looking at it that it just kind of came out of how things have just developed in social media and the cross platforms between Instagram, you know, YouTube, particularly for the influencers, how they use those those sites and and use multiple ones. One of the other things that we were speaking about with some of our other kind of musical colleagues was this idea of not being able to switch off because things are being pitched at you constantly. And some of it is, you know, for positive reasons. Like we said, people might want to get in touch with you who are friends uh, (laughs) and colleagues might just have something to share with you and all the rest. But have there been any kind of studies or anything looking into how, how positive or negative it might be for you to be plugged in all the time? Mm. I think, again, the consequences of that one is still very much sort of being uncovered, if you like. Um, they often say that it's good to have a break from technology. It's, it's good to sort of not be plugged in all the time. And sometimes it's the consequences of being plugged in all the time or wanting to be plugged in all the time. So there's obviously the, the concept of uh, fear of missing out, FOMO. Mm. That is very much from the fear of not being plugged in. And what am I going to miss? Yeah, I mean, our the Chris who we spoke to in episode one was saying actually he'd taken quite a break from being on social media at all and from his perspective it wasn't just what he would miss but would his fans miss him and from his experience he said it was fine (laughs) but it kind of came with a slightly odd one in that he felt there was so much noise out there that no one was going to worry if he wasn't part of that noise just for a a short space of time although I think he said he took a number of months off at one point yeah yeah and and when he came, came back it was easy to pick up where he left off yeah, which is really nice in. Uh, it's good for us. It's such a competitive <laughs> yeah. industry as well, where you know there's so much going on. Um, I'm sure that translates to other industries as well. Yeah, it can't just be us as creators. I think this this is something that a lot of self-employed people must have to deal with quite a lot because it's part of being a business. It's part of marketing yourself using these tools, or kind of scrambling to make them work for you at the best. Anyway. <laughs> So here's one, um, I don't know, This, not thinking negatively, but obviously uh, we're humans using social media and behind the scenes, it's very much driven by algorithms, which is not a human being, despite, you know, someone has programmed that, but it's thinking for you at this point and sort of, I don't know, reprogramming the way we think, like take TikTok that learns your preferences really quickly. Is that doing something to our brains? I think it. it's a nice question because... I've often wondered about this, about the role of algorithms, because you're right, the benefit is you kind of get what you want. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes the algorithm isn't perfect yet, but, you know, give it a few years, maybe it it would be. Um, But I've often wondered what the cost is to that, because um, surely it's limiting. The algorithm might be sort of thinking too much about what it thinks you like, rather than necessarily broadening out what you might like. You know, it could get very Mm. stuck into these categories. Yeah. And then, in yeah. effect, that's very much limiting your experiences and what you're connecting to. Um, and I think we can probably all relate to something where it has recommended something for us that we don't like, but then we keep getting them and we think, <laughs> oh, I don't want this anymore. Yeah, even yeah. if it's that kind of advertisement thing, isn't it? On yeah. Facebook, you think, I really don't need that thing, yeah. but it's decided I am the target audience. It's like, yeah, it's, it's these feedback mechanisms yeah. that, mm. that sort of roll into themselves. And I think, yeah, something that I've experienced in, in my own personal usage has been 
yeah, the evidence of these echo chambers. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your opinion sort of being rebroadcast back to you. Mm-hmm. But of course it led to, there was a case recently of an AI-generated music artist, very much in our sphere, but uh, it was a rapper and drawing a lot of its material from uh, AI trawling the internet to, to create its lyrics and things. And unfortunately the end result came out as being quite racist and misogynistic and that was just based on data points. So the algorithm is not always right in this case. Yeah, maybe maybe don't always follow the data. <laughs> <laughs> not that specifically, not that close. If we were going to kind of step ahead just a little bit and consider, let's, um, I mean, from my perspective, if I spoke personally, I do feel that I use social media a little bit too much. And for me, it's a distraction thing as well. I use it for work. Um, I use it to share a lot of stuff that we're doing as a band. That's mm-hmm. great. Yep. And then it's really easy to open up WhatsApp and have seven messages, streams going at once and that kind of thing. And so one of the things we wanted to do when we had people like yourself, specialists, was to investigate if we do feel that we're maybe overdoing it a little bit, what are the things we can start to put in place just to have a slightly better balance and a more exciting fun ride of it all, as it were? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question because a lot of um, a lot of people have been feeling this way because nobody really teaches you how to use technology. Exactly this, yeah. Yeah, or how to get the best out of it for you because I think we're all different and we all use it in different ways. We might use the same app, but we can still use it very differently. Um, and I did some work with a student where we looked into this and we were looking at this idea of digital resilience, how we could basically get the best out of it, deal with technology's challenges and... Basically, it was to kind of summarise what that was, is looking at it first step, find awareness. What are you doing? Why do you pick the platforms that you do? How much time do you spend on it? Not necessarily a bad thing with the time. It was more an awareness. Like it's a finding out exercise. What are you doing? You know, for example, I think you mentioned that you get distracted by something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, what what is distracting you? How often does that happen? Okay. Mm -hmm. So... uh... I'm going to guess, really ironically, that there's probably a digital tool to, to achieve that for some things, isn't <laughs> How there? How did you know? I know, How did right? You know? Technology to solve technology. That's right. But... That's right. Yeah, there's quite a few. And um, I do find it interesting, obviously, technology to solve technology. But, I, you know, I've actually used some of the usage apps myself. Okay. And I find them really interesting because often, I think we spoke about this earlier with the memory, part of the reason our memory might also not process in the same way is because we might be in a state of flow because, you know, we we sort of get in the zone, it's very interactive, and we don't tend to be able to recall everything we've done because of that flow state, um, which which is perfectly normal. If you could remember every every second of, of your phone use, it wouldn't be as natural, it wouldn't feel as nice. That's an interesting one because I <laughs> often associate like flow state with uh, people talk about that when they talk about mindfulness or meditation as a very positive thing to be in the moment in a flow state. I've heard state. about it in terms of like web coders. They get into a flow state where they're just sort of in in the zone <laughs> and they can just go. In the zone is a great, yeah, great <laughs> yeah. definition of flow. Yeah, it's that feeling. And even what you guys do, you know, the way you do the music and what you love, it you, you might feel that too. <laughs> yeah, you can get to the mm. end of, it, of a gig and think, can we do that again? Because actually mm. it flies by when you're in the moment and doing it and having mm. a great time. Mm. I guess the flip side of that is is whether there's any merit or any, any scientific sort of led data to the idea that taking a digital detox or like a retreat um, for any number of sort of days or weeks has any merit whatsoever. Like, is that if I were to take a week off all my social media, all my screen time and then come back, is that 
is that going to be good for me? Is that going to be worth the while? Is that? Yeah, we were saying, <laughs> is it like taking a, a crash diet and then you'll go back to bad habits or is it better <laughs> to, to be very mindful about the way you detox and change your diet? Yeah, it's a great analogy. It's a really good analogy. I think that's uh, it's really interesting. It's difficult to know because it depends what the technology is doing for you and how you're feeling. Like I think if it's if you're always sort of coming off technology and feeling sort of in a worse mood than you were before, maybe a detox, but it might... I think it's difficult to rule out everything. Mm. I think that's why it's very hard to say, yeah, have a detox completely and maybe start at the awareness stage and find out what it is you're using it for because it might be as simple as one app that might not be serving you as well as some others. So it's really difficult to kind of say, oh, yeah, try everything. But that being said, some people might find that quite nice just to step away from their phone (laughs) from a bit, you know. So, I mean, if I'm getting lost in Twitter, for example, in my flow state of reading about the latest political news, uh, (laughs) of which there is so much, um, what would be my next step in figuring out what I'm actually doing with my time there? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm assuming... I don't even know. I've never checked this. Would my phone have something to tell me how long I'm doing it? Or is there an app? Yeah, most phones will do it. Most phones will give you the usage and they'll tell you sort of, they'll break it down with what apps you're using, how much you use it a week. Uh, They're quite good. They're non-judgment. They just give you the data, which I always think is nice. They never judge you. (laughs) Not yet. They might add that feature in, but at the moment... Yeah, I know that particularly um, like PlayStation, for example, will pop up every now and then. Netflix is another one that has little reminders just saying, are you still watching? Are you... Mm -hmm. You know, are you okay? Maybe, maybe go outside for a walk or something. Um, yeah, something that I've, I've kind of been semi-aware of is that I, I have like this weird perspective thing where I, I think I'm spending less time than I actually am using my phone. Like I think it's only been like ten minutes or something, but it's been an hour. Yeah, and that sort of uh, data-led tool is going to be really useful for that sort of thing. I mean, just to put my mind at rest, is that reasonably common to, to kind of literally think, oh, so it's only been a little while. I've not done very much of it. it, it honestly, it, I think so many people say this. It's, it's such a shared experience of, you mm. know, I'm only going to do this and the time just flies. And we don't always realise that, you know, unless we've checked the time when we open that app and then we close the app again or whatever it is we're using, mm. we're not keeping track of the time. So we don't know necessarily. So if I've... Uh... If I've identified, for example, that my Twitter usage is just a little bit too too crazy, especially when the latest update comes through, uh, are there technologically based tools to help manage that time? Yes. So there are apps you can get that can help you with this. And some of them, um, with your permission, can help you set timers, Can so, so you're aware of how long you're spending on apps. Some of them even do phone pickups, so, you know, so if you sort of get a notification and you look at your phone, they can be quite, some people say that's quite distracting. Mm. Um, they can sort of limit that and mute it for you so that you're not necessarily getting those distractions. Uh, again, it, it really depends on what it is, if it was the notifications, if it was the time spent on apps. Yeah, I can imagine actually having to drill down into that. Um, for me, it would it would be the <laughs> notification thing when I'm trying to do other work because it represents to me something more fun than keeping on track. So, yeah, that would definitely be one for me to look at. <laughs> yeah, something that I, I wanted to ask you was, uh, obviously, you you probably know a lot more than than uh, as mere mortals about the uh, the wider landscape of the digital world. What what's your sort of relationship with with social media at the moment? Has it changed depending on? Sort of the... Yeah, the kind of background to your study, has that influenced how you approach these things? Mm. Uh, you know, it's really funny you say that. I, I'm still human. I still fall into the traps. 
you know I, I still sort of um have you know when there's the even on twitter i also use twitter and you know it's very difficult not to get involved with it you know and mm. there's been times i that's why i've looked at my technology use as well and i'm really honest i say i even look at mine and think well am i happy with that i remember um i tell my students i got i switched on the the data for every week to tell me how much i'm using my phone and some weeks it shocked me because I, I wouldn't have, if you had asked me, I would have said something completely different. So, you know, I think it just shows you it's like a human nature thing is we all kind of fall into these these traps sometimes, not intending to. So it can be really helpful for us just to be aware of it and, and know. And I'm just, you know, I just I just always keep an eye on it as long as I'm happy with it. Mm. And I think that's the key. It's kind of incorporating yeah. it into your life in a way that really works for you. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I, I think that's something personally that's missing Missing for me is that all these distractions co- sort of lead to, to this rabbit hole effect of <laughs> fall, falling down one and then falling down the next one. And you can sometimes convince yourself that it's okay <laughs> because I wasn't doing one thing all that time. I was distracted by several different things. Yeah. They're all different and that's okay. And I suppose in some ways they are if they fulfill a different function. Mm-hmm. But you touched on this earlier. There's not, or I think we've mentioned as well, there's not really one central place where you can go to get taught about this. No mm-hmm. one teaches you how to use this technology in that way. It's a bit like learning to walk. You just kind of get up and go. Mm. Is there anywhere where you can go, like a central repository that has this kind of advice on what you can do to manage your kind of technology behaviour? They've tried to sort of include it more in schools, um, which is helpful for the next generations coming through. They're, mm. they're trying to, they've made it more specific into like the different things they're doing. So whether they're, they're gaming, whether they're on social media, so those things. Um, but when it comes to sort of uh, adult usage, I'm trying to think of anything um, to sort of provide Yeah, because it feels to us like there's a bit of a, well, not quite a black hole, but there's definitely a space there for someone to be offering that kind of advice. Yeah, there's, a, there's kind of a, a secondary question there as well in that there's, there seems to be like a blurred line between your work usage and your personal usage and, you know, sometimes during during the work hours you might <laughs> you might be distracted somewhat and... and Likewise, in reverse, you know, it might be in the evening and you get an email from work and, you know, those lines are really blurred and there's nothing really to help with that other than your own decision making, really. (laughs) Yeah, it's too easy uh, to switch back into work mode very suddenly. I don't we've not brought in that rule yet, have we? Like some other European countries that your boss can't email you outside of work hours. Yeah, that's right. Bring that one on. Yeah. People are talking about it, though. It's, It's such an interesting moving landscape as well but that's regulation from top down and that was one of the things we were thinking about as well is obviously we can do a lot of grassroots stuff to look after us on the baseline uh, but we're wondering if there is anything kind of above us overarching that bleeds down to support our technology use or are we really just at the mercy of tech giants trying to keep us ensnared <laughs> i think yeah there's i mean obviously there are things around uh, a lot around data and mm-hmm. social media sites have, have really changed how they manage your data and how they make you aware of all the data they're collecting because i think in the early days people weren't aware of this data and how it could be used and how valuable it was so there's been a lot around that and i think there will be more i mean that as the research will come out the researchers will provide recommendations so if we think about you know, when to use technology. And uh, if we think about our eyes again, that's always a nice example because of health. There will be things around it. Even games have, you know, health warnings on them as well. So I think there are things there and there'll always be sort of policy that can be put in place. I mean, at the moment, is there any responsibility for um, 
well, not naming any particular like social media groups, but is, do they have any responsibility to encourage us to be considerate about our usage? Well, that, that's, it's a really interesting uh, point because there's been more of a call for these platforms to be responsible for what they're making. There's definitely that that movement, but it's still very much an ongoing argument of how much is placed on the actual platform who create these sites and applications versus the user. Where does the responsibility fall? And I think, in my opinion, I think it's a bit of both. There's got to be both. So what kind of forums would there be to have those discussions, do you think, at this point? Kind of talking about who should have uh, the weight of that responsibility and, and how you think about it for yourself as I well. I don't say it's a social media group. <laughs> <laughs> the irony would be funny, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, it's more sort of been the movements um, behind sort of the government, the government groups asking the social media firms to sort of be more open uh, and transparent about their data. That's one example. So it's really something that the governments are getting involved with. Um, is it is it something that um, is perhaps like endorsement by use? So the whole uh, to take veganism for as a as an example is, you know, you're you're voting with your consumerism almost. So if people don't like a certain platform, the way a certain platform is being run, <coughs> they'll they won't use it effectively. I suppose that happened with MySpace. People <laughs> voted with their feet, didn't they? Yeah, and moved on, and Facebook definitely filled the void. Mm. Yeah. Or was it that Facebook was just the next new thing? Yeah, it's, I mean, the thing is, if people did stop using the platforms, that you know, that's mm. what they, they want people to be engaging with them. So it's an interesting point. Yeah, because we read a lot at the moment about, um, yeah, finding the next new thing, and that can be a new shiny thing, and it can be very attractive to use, and infinite scrolling rather than doom scrolling. You've got things like TikTok, <laughs> and we know that algorithms in the background there are amazing at figuring out what you might like to watch and they will feed you that kind of content and it's a great place to be and yeah you can vote with your feet and use that but it's very different i mean if facebook decides to have a more tiktok model because it seems to be doing well uh, that potentially takes away a platform for us that we've already adapted to and it's i suppose that comes down to how quickly it shifts under our feet as someone who's trying to learn to use it uh, in a very mindful way as a business i mean it just changes so often i mean I don't know what the next big thing will be. <laughs> no, there was there was an interesting quote. I can't remember who said it, but um, that the internet was the first thing that man has made that man doesn't understand, and that kind of leads me to the to the the question of like the speed that technology advances now is is so great that the speed that is required for us to keep up with it um, seems almost untenable sometimes like you've got to read the latest updates the latest releases in order to know how the algorithms work and and all the rest of it yeah, yeah the, it does the, feel like you've got an advantage if you're a digital of, native yeah there's otherwise, a fear of being left behind isn't there yeah well. absolutely if we don't keep up with it it's so easy to to be forgotten in some ways <laughs> i think and like we're we're both millennials elder millennials <laughs> uh, kind of coping with the, the shift the change in learning about these new platforms and i do see the students I work with, very data savvy. They're very aware of what happens with their data. That's a really good thing. Um, and they they are definitely like Gen Z and they're, they're less inclined to be on these platforms. I don't know if that's a trend that's kind of happened recently that you might be aware of, but um, they're not using platforms like Facebook as much. Mm -hmm. And some of them are actually talking to me about how they understand that their data is harvested very readily there and they don't want to share that much online. But I don't know if that's kind of coming out in research yet or if that's really early days. Yeah, I, it's, um, I think it would depend on sort of the, the age groups they're looking at. Um, I mean, they've noticed that Facebook, 
from you know when they've asked you know university students they notice that's not really the one that they're using anymore I, I've heard that from my students anecdotally you know yep. when I mention Facebook yes, they say absolutely. oh we don't really use that anymore um mostly because they say it's just it's for the older generations is how they describe <laughs> it um you know which is fair enough when you think about how you know when Facebook was created you can understand I can understand their point of view compared to the other social media platforms it is it's the older ones isn't it so uh, I asked that because um, once we've we've met all of our experts, uh, we've got an episode where we're drawing in uh, an audience panel and we tried to get a spread of people who are going to come and visit us after all of this, um, from boomers all the way down to some Gen Z participants. And, and I, before I stroll in with this kind of preconception, is it kind of how I would assume technology use kind of works for the different age age ranges would i would i be correct in thinking that like gen z are very at home with all of this tech and it's very much falls off from there or it, you know it's interesting because it kind of uh connects to the stereotype that you know obviously the the older generations might not use tech and i don't think it's as clear cut as that i think what i've tend to see is that some people are just more into tech than others you know I think mm. there's a bit of a spread yeah. depending on what you use tech for some people are really techy and they love to have all the different social media apps they'll use loads um, I think it's also personality you know like some people if they want that social connection might pick more socially driven platforms whereas other people might want to have other things out of their tech use so I, th I think it's very difficult to know maybe the the age differences yeah, I think actually that's going to be quite an interesting one to investigate with uh, with the panel when we get them all in. Yeah, it it could be that like in ten years' time or something, they've the platforms have almost self-selected and pitched themselves at a particular age range, so they're catering for this. Do you feel you like know. Facebook's going to grow old with us? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Maybe it'll be Reddit. That'll be where we go. <laughs> quite quite like a bit of Reddit. It's like Twitter but longer form. <laughs> So from there, it would be fascinating to be able to point some of our listeners onto somewhere they can go for a bit more information. So a bit of further reading or, yeah, a bit of a bibliography of resources. If you've got anything in your mind that might be like, where would you point people at if they want to know a bit more about all of this? Yeah, I think one of the really sort of nice starting points is there are sort of textbooks uh, looking at the introduction to cyber psychology that talk about some of the, the basic ideas and, and what it represents and what it is and some of the theories that they apply. And they're typically quite accessible because they're textbooks, they're, they're made to be sort of for everybody. So I would point them in, into that. So like, yeah, exactly. So Very like introduction. That's, that's what I want to hear. Well, that's right. And I think these things should be anyway. So yeah, I think they're brilliant. I've read a couple that are really good. Amazing. So really, that just leaves me uh, to say thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been you. lovely to have you here. It's been absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the invite. I've loved chatting to you guys. So you've been listening to episode three of Limited Bandwidth Podcast with The Last Inklings and special guest, Dr. Sarah Hodge. And we've been discussing the science of how social media works on the human brain and how to monitor and manage your usage. If you have been affected by any of the topics covered in this podcast, uh, you can find support through the Help Musicians website at helpmusicians.org.uk forward slash contact. And our guest in episode four of the series will be Misha Weston-Green, who is a digital marketing specialist with 15 years of experience in the business. And he's also uh, an active musician. Uh, this podcast was hosted, recorded and engineered by Leo and David with music by The Last Inklings. And you can find out more about the podcast at thelastinklings.co.uk. Mm -hmm.